0: And turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Listen as I read this psalm to you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than, the, than God and have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The majesty of God. Psalm 8 is known as a poem of the astronomer or the hymn of the astronomer. It's a hymn, a Hebrew poem, a poem that speaks of the heavens, and thus the name, the astronomer, as well. David could have said what he says in this psalm in prose, but he chose to put it in poetry because poetry has an incredible power above prose. Say, I love you, to your spouse in simple prose, and it's wonderful, well-received, but say it in poetry, in a poem. And wow, the poetry has the wow factor. Poetry makes it unforgettable. It has a memory assist. Songs do that. Poetry does that. We find it so easy to remember. Poetry helps to draw a picture in the mind. You can see it so clearly. There's a song, I believe, that does it so well. The love of God. The second verse. Could we with ink... The oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Don't you feel like you were right there, standing on the beach? Seeing this unfold right on the ocean's edge. It is that kind of a picture that Psalm 8, the psalmist, draws for us. Because it reveals the majesty of God in a very special way. It draws a unique picture of who God is. It captures our mind's eye. It gives a glimpse of God in an unforgettable way. A psalm of God's majesty, of praise, of adoration. It remembers his gift of salvation dramatically unveiled to us. It unwraps the covering of this incredible gift, this gift of redemption and of salvation. It is a psalm that reveals the majesty of God in a very unique way. Scripture speaks often of the majesty of God. There are numerous scriptures that, that do that. Job 37 verse 22, for example, speaks of his presence as majestic. Around God is is awesome majesty. God's clothing is said to be majestic. Psalm 93 verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Psalm 104 verse 1, you are clothed with with majesty, The psalmist goes on to proclaim that God's voice is majestic as well. Psalm 29 verse 4, the voice of the Lord is majestic. Job 37 verse 4, he thunders with majestic voice. These are just a few of the verses that describe God's majesty. There are many, many more. Like those other passages, Psalm 8 speaks also of the majesty of God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. But Psalm 8 is different. It describes the majesty of God from a different perspective. Other passages tell us that God is majestic. And indeed he is. But Psalm 8 goes a step further. It tells us why. Why God is majestic. Psalm 8 is a powerful description in poetry of what God has done for you and for me. And how undeserving that we truly are. And that is why he is majestic. Let's look at this beautiful poem together. Beginning with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here we have the introductory theme to this small Short chapter. It's a thematic statement of God's majesty. We know it's a theme because you look down to verse 9 and it's repeated. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's like a book that summarizes the end in chapter 1 and then backs up in chapter 2 and tells you the story all the way through to the end. Within this introduction, David David tells us two things about the majesty of of God, First of all, the titles of majesty and then the extent of majesty. But first of all, the titles of majesty. O Lord, our Lord. He begins here with these two titles. Begins, O Lord, if you will notice carefully, it is all capital letters in your Bible. It is the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes called Jehovah, Yahweh. It's a title of character. I beg of you, don't overlook names in Scripture. They tell us so much about what is really going on. This is the intimate, personal name for God. No other nation has this name. Other names, yes, but not this one. It means eternal existence, eternal presence. Eternal existence, eternal presence. Always is, always is there. In other words, as long as I live, I will be with you. Why is this name so significant? Turn back with me in your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. In chapter 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant given to us. I will bless you. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, and so on. And then we come to chapter 15, and we have the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. The ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. When you make an agreement, or a promise, or a treaty, a covenant, if you will, with someone else, sometimes it's very important, and you have to have a notary public go to sign it, to make it official, In the days of Abraham, they took sacrifices. They cut them in two and laid them aside, one side to the other. And then they walked between the pieces of the sacrifice and thereby said, as long as both of us are alive, this treaty is in force. But as soon as one of us dies, this treaty, this promise, this covenant is no longer in force. And so we come to chapter 15 where we have the uh, Abrahamic covenant ratified. And he makes a promise there to Abraham that uh, your reward shall be very great in verse 1. And then talks about the offspring that he will have from his own body in verse 4 and so on. Verse 6, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Paul, of course, picks up that theme in Romans chapter 4. But we continue here in Genesis 15. Abraham says, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so he said, bring to him a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and so on. And he brought them all to him, and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. The birds came down, and he drove them away. Now verse 12, now when the sun had gone down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nation where they serve, and afterward will come out with, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a flaming, a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces." On that day, the Lord, all capital letters, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abraham was asleep. God alone, the Lord alone, walked between the pieces of the sacrifice, thereby stating, as long as I live, always is, always is there, eternal existence, eternal presence, as long as I live, I will be with you and this covenant will be in force. It was a unilateral covenant. God took on the responsibility to fulfill all of the stipulations of the covenant. From there, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Here we have the account of the Lord coming to Moses and saying, Would you lead my people out of Egypt? And Moses rebels doesn't want to do it. And finally, in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He's concerned about what happened in chapter 2, where he killed the Egyptians for for fighting with an Israelite. And the next day he saw two Israelites fighting and he stepped between them. And they said, who sent you to do this? And he remembers that. Though it was 80 years later, he remembers it. Whom shall I tell them has sent me? What shall I say to them? Then verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. To me, I am. I am is the verb form of the proper noun, Lord. It is the verbal form of the proper noun, Lord. I am. I'm always with you. I exist forever. We know that to be the case even all the way through and into the New Testament. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And you recall the response of the Pharisees. They picked up stones to stone him. John 18, verse 5. They come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell over like dead men. They fell to the ground. O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh. Eternal existence, eternal presence. You can turn back to Psalm chapter 8. The second title, the second title of majesty, O Lord, our Lord. You will notice that while it is capital L, it is lowercase, O Lord, our Lord. This is a title of position. It is Adonai. It means master or ruler. denotes kingliness, royalty, denotes the right to rule. O Lord, the one who exists forever, I know that you have the right to rule. O Lord, our Lord. Both of these titles play a significant role down through the chapter. These are the two things that David focuses on. Who God is and what God does. His character and his role. Then later on, He talks about who man is and what man is to do, his character and his role. Each of these play a significant role down through the remainder of the chapter. Titles of majesty, O Lord, our Lord. And then the extent of this majesty, he goes on to say, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The extent of his majesty speaks both of his quality and of quantity, of quality. The word for magic here is the word adore in Hebrew, from which we get the word adore or adorable. Superior above all. It is glorious. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Here is the quantity factor in all the earth. In Isaiah's vision of the Lord high and lifted up, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 says, The fullness of the whole earth is his glory. The fullness of the whole earth is his glory. It is everywhere. Ever have a flood in your house? It is everywhere. You can't keep the water out. It is everywhere. And that is like it is here. It is everywhere, the glory of the Lord. Psalm excuse me, Romans chapter one. The Apostle Paul says that all creation declares him, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. It is everywhere. His majesty is everywhere. Introductory theme titles of majesty. The extent of majesty. And then the psalmist goes on. He goes on on to say two things about the majesty of God. His majesty, he says, is revealed through a great proclamation. And secondly, through a great reclamation. Through a great proclamation and through a great reclamation. First of all, the great proclamation. The last part of verse 1 through verse 2. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. The loftiness of the heavens. Superiority. Loftiness. It is beyond comparison. It is superior to the universe above the heavens. Psalm 19, the verses you know well. Heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day after day pours forth speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. And there's no place that it's not felt the heat of the sun. It is everywhere. It is lofty. It is superior. It's beyond comparison. And then he goes on in verse 2 to make a contrast. And this is Hebrew poetry. One verse, one phrase contrasts with the next one. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful ceased. The glory of God here, in contrast to the heavens, is down to the lowliness of infants. The glory of God, the majesty of God can be seen even by the youngest of children. Nursing babies here. Children below the age of three when they were normally weaned in Hebrew life. Because... It can be seen through infants and nursing babes. It is something that establishes strength. It has poured a foundation of strength. It is very strong. Establish strength. Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 21. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It is the triumphal entry. And the children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And the Pharisees confront Jesus and say, don't you hear what they're saying? Tell them to stop. And he says, yes, but have you never read? And then he quotes this passage. And the Pharisees were stilled. They were silenced. The great proclamation, the lowliness of infants, the loftiness of the heavens, the macro, the heavens, the micro, the infants, as well. A great a proclamation as that is, as great a proclamation as that is, there's an even greater revelation of God's majesty here in chapter eight. And that brings us to the great reclamation. The great reclamation, verses three through eight. The psalmist here in this passage, if you have not already noticed, always begins with the heavens, the loftiness of the heavens, and then he moves down to the lowliness of mankind. While he starts with the heavens, he spends more time talking about mankind. Why does he do this? God's splendor revealed in the heavens is magnificent. It is majestic. But the splendor of his work in redemption, regeneration of mankind is far, far more remarkable. We see that in verse 4, but we must look at verse 3 first because Verse 4 is introduced by verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Notice your heavens, your fingers. David is very emphatic here. Creation is a personal work of God. He is the one who did it. It speaks of ownership. The heavens belong to him. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's. The earth he has given to the children of men. The universe is vast. It is magnificent. But the one who created it is greater because the cause is greater than the effect. And it is magnificent. Scientists tell us that the Milky Way galaxy has over 300 billion stars in it, And it is only one of millions upon millions of galaxies spread out into space. Your heavens, your fingers. This is anthropomorphic language describing God's work in human terms. God does not have fingers, but since fingers are used to make things, he speaks to them in human terms. He describes things that way. Scripture tells us that he not only created them and made them, but he also named them and numbered them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. In light of the grandeur of the heavens, a universe of which we do not know the boundaries, how could a God who created a universe so infinite wherein the earth is comparatively a speck of dust, how could this creator possibly be interested in mankind, in you, and in me? That is the question posed in verse 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? He uses two different words here for man. The first one, what is man, is the word Enosh. We're introduced to Enosh way back in the Genesis account. Adam and Eve sinned and they were thrown out of the garden. Genesis chapter 4, Eve gives birth to Cain. She says, I've gotten a man, the Lord. Cain means gotten one. She thought she'd given birth to the promise of the Messiah promised in chapter three, verse 15. But she soon realized that that was not the case, because she gave birth to another one. they named him Abel. Abel means vapor, vanity. Life is short, it's like a vapor, and then it is gone. And then of course, you know the account how they fought with each one another, and Cain rose up and slew his brother. Down toward the end of chapter 4, we have a third son born to Adam and Eve. They named him Seth. means appointed one. God has appointed one to take the place of Abel. And then in the last two verses, it says that Seth had a son. So now you're down into the grandchildren. Seth had a son. And they named him Enosh. Enosh. And then the last verse says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, Enosh means incurably sick. By the time you get to the third generation, the grandchildren of Adam and Eve, they realize the full impact of what they had been told in the garden, that the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They were dying, and they knew their only hope was to call upon the name of the Lord. You know that word also in another passage, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all else, and desperately sick, incurably sick. Who can know it? What is man, incurably sick, that you take thought of him? And then the second phrase, and the Son of Man. There, the word man is the word Adam, from which we get the word in Hebrew, the word ground, born of dust. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. One born of the earth. What is man that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? He's incurably sick. He's born out of dust and soon he will return to dust. That you care for him. You give special attention to him. You show him divine mercy. Rarely do they do it anymore. But in the early days of our space travel, they used to send back pictures of earth from space. And I suspect you did the same thing that I did. You see that beautiful blue and white ball hanging in space, and I would would try to pick out continents. I usually couldn't, but I would try, and I would scheme, well, maybe that's North America. And then I would think, well, if that's North America, then a parenthetical mark about the size of California, right over California. And if that's California, then maybe the size of a period, a dot, would be Los Angeles and vicinity. All 10 to 15 million of us. And that I am one of us. He has the hairs of my head numbered. What is man? That you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Can you get a handle on that? Job, just a few chapters earlier, Job Chapter 25, Bildad is speaking to Job. Listen to what he says because he uses these same two words. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? In other words, humanity, mankind. Even if the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that maggot, and the son of man, that worm, Enosh and Adam, Adam. Picturesque, same two words. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me, that you care for him, that you show divine mercy on him. That brings us to verse 5. All the preceding, the first four verses have been building toward this. It's like a crescendo. This is the climax. Verse 5. Yet, yet, in spite of verse 4, yet you've made him a little lower than God and you've crowned him with glory and majesty. You've made him a little lower than God. This is incredible. We have been made in the image of God. Now, maybe your Bible says angels here. Some translations read a little lower than the angels. That's following the repeat of this verse in Hebrews chapter 2, which we'll turn to in a moment. There in the Greek, it has angels. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, sometimes uses angels here instead of God, wanting to not to elevate man, wanting to be modest, not wanting to exalt mankind beyond his place, his position. Hebrews chapter 2 is all about the superiority of Christ and not man. But this passage takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. We have been created in the image of God. Evolutionists tell us that man is nothing more than an evolved animal, but that is not the case. Man is the most complex composition in all creation. In comparison to other created things, man is small, yet man is the crown of creation. Maybe you've done the same. When our boys were young, we used to take them camping up in Sequoia National Park. And that always called for a trip to see the giant sequoia trees. We would stand there in amazement. We would read the sign over and over, how it was 25, 30, 35 or whatever feet in diameter at the base. How the first branch up was 70 or 80 feet up and it was 7 feet in diameter. We would read how this tree was a young tree in the time of Christ. Amazing. The time of man's life is Three score and ten, and yet by reason of strength, four score years. This giant redwood tree has been there thousands of years. In comparison to other created things, man is so small, and yet God created us in his image. And he has crowned us, it says. He has crowned us with glory and honor. The word for crown there is a crown that is bestowed Not inherited, not handed down. It's mine by gift, not by right. Then he goes on in verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. You see, God made man to co-rule with him over his creation. That is God's intended destiny. Though it is God's work, creation is God's work, he set man over it to rule over it. That is the proof of verse 5. You've made him a little lower than God and you've crowned him with glory and honor. How do I know that's true? Because he gave rulership to mankind. And notice as you go to verse 7 and 8, the progression of thought, domesticated beasts. All sheep and oxen. And then beasts of the field, wild beasts. And then the birds of the heavens. And then the fish of the sea, the last frontier, if you will. In creation, God put all things under man's rule. Harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue is... In Hebrew, a smelting furnace. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the heavens and so on. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. In creation, God put all things under man's rule. But the question we have facing us this morning, is that true today? Do we know this to be true today? Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you are concerned about him? Those same two questions in Psalm 8. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands and you've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now the last part of verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We've not realized the rulership yet. We do not yet see all things subjected to him. Man's intended destiny was restricted by Adam's sin. Sin came into the world. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. Man would no longer rule over the earth as God intended it to be. Instead, in many respects, the earth would rule over mankind. By the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth food. Man plants, but is unsure what it will yield. <clears throat> Man lost his kingdom to a usurper. 1 John five nineteen. 19. The whole world <clears throat> lies in the power of Of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The animal kingdom. If it was subservient. Was done so only out of fear. Fear of man. Instead of looking upward to God. In whose image man was made. Mankind now. As a result of Adam's sin. Looks downward. To beasts. And becomes more and more. Like them. Romans chapter 1. So what does God do? God sends his only begotten son. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Notice Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. Here's the answer. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God... He might taste death for everyone. That's what he has done. The great reclamation. You see, the first Adam lost his position of rulership. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, gained it back. He paid a debt he didn't owe. He paid the debt. The curse has been removed in Christ. We've not inherited our dominion yet, but our spiritual position has been restored in Christ if you were a child of his. In the millennium, our rulership will be fully restored. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Here's the account of them trying to find someone who could open the seven-sealed book Who is worthy, verse 2 says, to open the book and to break its seals, Revelation 5, verse 2. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping because, behold, the lamb, excuse me, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, verse nine, look at it closely. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 10. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon The earth. They will reign upon the earth. We've not inherited our dominion yet. We're not in the millennium, but our spiritual position in Christ has been restored. And one day, when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, if you are a child of his, you and I will reign together with him. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And so then he goes, and you can turn back to Psalm 8. He concludes the way he began. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Irrepressible euphoria. He can't believe what he has just spoken. The poem he has just written. It is like the hallelujah chorus. You see, for him as well as for us, We were the incurably sick. We are the ones created out of dust. But, as a child of his, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. There's a song by Charles Wesley that encapsulates it, summarizes it so well. Listen as I read it to you. You know it well also. And, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work of grace, which you have wrought, which you have offered, which you have given. You've supplied what is necessary for peace with God through the death of your Son. The psalmist enunciates it, pictures it, presents it so vividly, so well. May our hearts reverberate with thanksgiving and praise. May we sing of the majesty of you and of your Son. I pray that if there are some here who do not know you, pray that they would come to know you and enjoy this great privilege as well of redemption in Christ which you have provided for them.